Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with film directors Julio Soto Garpide and Nicole Payon. That's all coming up on Endeavors. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. I am back in Canada, Victoria, at least uh, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, I had a little bit of a break between uh, when the job ended in Cole and the Hebrides uh, and when my course started in Newcastle. And since I probably wasn't going to be home for Christmas, I decided why not come and visit the family now, Um, especially because in the new year, it looks like I could be actually settling uh, somewhere in the UK for, you know, uh, at least a little bit. I mean, that's that's the goal anyway, Um, as much as I love, you know, just kind of being a roamer, um, it can get tiring. Um, and you can get burned out and what they call slow travel, you know, can have its benefits kind of, you know, be somewhere for five, six months, three months, a year, you know, however long. And the thing about being in the UK or somewhere on the continent of Europe is that it's very um, easy to go places uh, and to get to places. Um, So anyway, all of this is to say, uh, I'm going to be back here on the west coast of Canada uh, for a couple weeks until uh, the 15th of November, which is when I fly back to the UK uh, and my course begins on the 20th. Now I'm hoping to have shows put up between when my course is the, the 20th of November and I think it's the 15th of December. Um, but I'm going to be very, very busy in that time. So I'm, I'm, you know, it may be a case where I just pre-record a bunch and then edit them to have them, you know, go out at a certain time because I don't think I will have um, a lot of time to record new material, um, so to speak. So, um, but if you don't, get any get any content in that time uh you'll know why i mean i know i haven't been great at at posting content lately but you know being back home and and getting refreshed and i've got a a good bunch of stuff coming up so i i sort of haven't been giving this you know my 100 percent attention for the last couple you know year and a half or so or at least while i've been away but i'm really trying to like um hone you know hone back in on you know doing a weekly or twice weekly thing because it it does um it does give me joy in ways um that a lot of other things don't Uh, speaking of joy uh, we have two great film directors uh from two great films today you'll notice uh i've been talking a lot more with directors lately uh and that's mainly due to the strike uh in the states where um was, you know as part of the agreement uh unless they have a you know a waiver or sort of a, a temporary agreement um 
actors and members of ACTRA cannot um, promote their films. I mean, they can do, they can promote like plays and sort of anything that's not a, um, a, a, a signatory to, to the union, um, so to speak, but they can't promote films, even though I'm what would be foreign media because it's, you know, Canada and online, but it's just, you know, it's, it's part of the, um, agreement with the union and I fully support that. And, um, I love talking to directors. It's, it's just a, a, a different way, um, of, of looking at the film. Uh, so we, the first guest we have on today is Julio Soto Gorpide. Uh, and he is the director of a great animated film called Inspector Sun. And when you see the poster, you're like, oh, it kind of looks like, you know, uh, a bug's life or whatever. It's not. It's it's kind of a, it's a comedy, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit darker. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's like if an Agatha Christie mystery mystery think of you know like the current Kenneth Branagh Agatha Christie films if those were all insects um that's kind of what this film is um you know it's very like murder on the Orient Express but with bugs um and it's really cool because they've released an English language version and a Spanish language version, and I talk with Julio um, about that uh, a little bit, and, and, and Ronnie Chang uh, plays the lead. And then after Julio, uh, I talk with a, a lovely film director, uh, Nicole Payon, whose uh, film is called The Kill Room, which is about sort of the art world meeting, uh, sort of organized crime, if you will, and it's got a great cast of... Uh, Joe Manginello, Uma Thurman, and Samuel L. Jackson. And Nicole will be coming up uh, a little later on. Um, but as I mentioned right now, my uh, first guest is Julio Soto Garpide. Uh, and he is the director of the new film, uh, Inspector Sun. Uh, he has also uh, worked on the films Palestine, Deep, Dissection of a Storm, My Beautiful Dacia, Senior X, and Radio Pokemon. So this is my conversation with Julio Soto Garpide. Julio Soto Garpide, hello, welcome, how are you today? Pretty good, thank you for having me here. Um... So you have a, a great new uh, animated film coming out called uh, Inspector Sun. Uh, and this originally uh, came out in Spanish and now they're sort of doing um, the, the, the English language version of you will. What's, what's that like for you as a filmmaker to, to have a film you've done sort of come out in another country in another language? Um, I, well, I mean, the, the, the kind of films that we do, they're usually done in, in English originally, um, because that's the, the language that is sort of like the international language for selling films, uh, particularly animation, right? 
so the whole film was actually voiced in we we did the reference track in english so the lip sync was done in english as well uh and then what we did we dubbed into spanish uh we redubbed some some parts in english as well but the main character for example you know ronnie cheng uh played by ronnie cheng sorry he was uh he was giving his voice for the film uh, it was the first thing that we recorded so you know the animation was done with him uh, and his voice that's 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 a really um interesting way of doing it and i i think <clears throat> right i mean we're we're starting to see more sort of foreign language animation films but why do you think that that style in particular um has yet to crack the international market as opposed to you know other types of films even documentaries um like you said uh it's starting to be more common um you know viva viva our distributor in the u.s they're doing a great job with films that are coming from overseas you know and 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 they're being dis distributed widely in in the U.S. Like for example, the Amazing Maurice, uh, another animated film. Uh, it, it did really well in the U.S. I mean, we're not talking Disney numbers, okay? But we're talking uh, really uh, decent numbers for independent animation. Sorry, I have a cat here. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there you go. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so and and I guess this is something that the, the I, I would call it the platform effect, right? Uh, everybody's getting pissed off because Disney is releasing their films after two weeks in their platform, right? So so people are complaining like, oh, you know, we're making a, a two hundred million movie uh, for the platforms, basically, and nobody's gonna go and see it in the movies because they know they're, they're coming up on Disney Plus, you know, within two weeks. Um, and the same with, with Netflix. I mean, they don't even release it theatrically. So that's, that's giving uh, a pretty interesting scenario for independent films where suddenly the theaters are demanding uh, content that they can't get from platforms. So, so they are being more open now to independent movies coming from overseas. So I think in a way it's beneficial for independent producers like us, you know, uh, but I don't know if that's going to be the tendency of the future. I mean, who knows? Everything is changing every year. It it seems slightly ironic, doesn't it, that the platform that we used to look at for independent film, kind of you know smaller films, is you know is now like the king of Marvel, and where we used to go for Marvel and Star Wars has become the king of independent film. I. As a creator, what do you what do you make of this shift? Well, I, I remember living in the States, in New York, in the late '90s, early 2000s, and and having Netflix. Uh, I was I was one of the first, not first, but I, I was in the early stages of Netflix when you got the the the, the DVDs box, on yeah. your on your mailbox. And the reason why I subscribed to Netflix is because I wanted to see those weird obscure french movies from the 60s or 70s or or some strange documentary made by an italian guy in africa in the 80s you know and and that was that was netflix at that time 
And it, it is very ironic now that they're becoming, you know, like a multi-billion uh, uh, company that produces content for, you know, $200 million, an animated movie that who knows how many people are going to watch. But it doesn't matter because it's, you know, they're big, I mean, they're, they're, um, it's all about PRing and, 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 you know, how big their movies are and, and and like you said, I mean, just just grabbing as much market as they can. I think once upon a time, animation was very like, if it was an animated movie, you knew it was going to be like kid friendly and kind of you know a uh, quote unquote fluffy story. I think Brad and then Brad Bird threatened to punch somebody who called animation a genre. For you, is it less a genre and? more sort of a filmmaking method and what do you make of sort of this expansion now of all types of animated films that we're seeing i i do agree with that vision i think animation is cinema it's just another medium you know it's something that you could be doing you know, experimental uh, movies or you could be doing anything uh, but the, the point is to tell a story right and animation is very very good for certain kind of narratives which involve uh, fanta fantasy worlds or family films uh, talking animals things like this so for me it's just a, a medium um I don't know if that was answering your question, but but yeah, I mean, I totally agree with, uh, I think it was Guillermo del Toro that said this, right, in the Oscars. Um, th this film takes place uh, in the 30s on a train, and it, it strikes me, and I don't know how you feel about this, but of sort of like the classic Agatha Christie story, like, you know, we're seeing Murder on the Orient Express and, and all the different movies that, that, that Ken Brand is making. Was was that something that was an inspiration to to this to this film? Was sort of not Christie per se, but that sort of type of of story. Absolutely, I mean, we had all her books in our heads when we were developing the story, and it was uh, it was the Hercule Poirot, the uh, the detective that was always very present. You know, also Charlie Chan movies that became, it was the first time that an Asian uh, actor became a celebrity in the States. And that was in the 50s. Humphrey Bogart and the Maltese Falcon, even the Naked Gun, you know, the the character Frank uh, Debrin, I think is his name, yeah. uh, with his clumsiness and his stupidity, but in the end, you know, he, he saves the day, you know. Uh, so the, the, there is a little bit, of, there is a popularity of all these things, yeah, certainly. Yes, Sun kind of reminds me of the cross of Charlie Chan and Inspector Clouseau, I would say. Yes, awesome. Um, Given that <laughs> the characters in this film are um, bugs, you know, insects, arachnids, and a lot of them are, are spiders, actually. I'm, I'm curious as to how much research you did into the bug kingdom the the insect kingdom to 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 find the the right creature to make your your character and why you ultimately decided to settle on a spider a lot there's a lot of research done 
me and one of the partners in my company, we're, we, we are like wannabe biologists. I mean, I, I, since I was a child, I, I wanted to be a biologist, but it never happened. Uh, and my friend collects uh, newts and salamanders, so he's he's a big, uh, yeah. uh, like a big freak in this sense. Uh, so there is a lot of them. Uh, like each character is based on an actual species. You know, Inspector Sun is a huntsman spider from Brazil. Oops, sorry. Um, Jane is a jumping spider. There. Are I read somewhere there is more than 3,000 species of uh, jumping spiders. It's one of the largest. Just just to keep in mind, like the the number of insect species is 90% of everything that that exists on planet Earth, you know. And mammals are just like 5%, I think, or less than that. So in fact, you know, it's a world run by insects, but we just don't know it. <laughs> if if you think, you know. What do you think the insects would say about humans? <laughs> That's a good question. It takes a lot of brain uh, power to think about that. Uh, what would they think? I mean, if I have to think about the, how, how the red locust would think is we want to exterminate humans because they are just uh, and nuisance, you know, they're destroying our world. So let's let's put up a huge swarm and destroy all their crops and all their food. Uh, I I guess, but that's my that's the ecologist and me talking. You know, they would think we are a big uh, problem that needs to be dealt with. <laughs> Given that uh, the full title of this film is Inspector Sun and the Curse of the Black Widow. Is this something that you could foresee turning into some sort of film series, each with Sun sort of being like Poirot or Clouseau in, in so, uh, solving a, a different crime wherever he goes? Well, absolutely. That was that was the that was always the idea, you know, from the uh, from the ending of this film. I mean, so we already planted the, the the plot for the next one. Something happening in Egypt, you know. Uh, so yeah, that, that's the idea. Let's see how how well it goes in, in the theaters. Like, what numbers we get, and hopefully, you know, the distributors uh, will decide that it's a good idea to have a, a sequel of Inspector Sun and the Curse of the Black Widow. Um, Ronnie Chang um, plays Inspector Sun, and obviously, Sun uh, is an Asian last name. Was it important for you to to cast an Asian-American actor. I mean, there there are so many conversations about that, especially more so now in terms of voiceover and, and, and animation. Uh, it was very important, yeah. The the, the main producer, uh, she's from Asian origin as well, Adriana Chen. Uh, her her family is from Shanghai. I mean, we have a big connection with, with China. Um, my daughter is half Chinese as well, uh, so there is a there is a big element of, uh, of, of of Asia that we wanted to put in the movie. Um, so yeah, I mean, we we wanted to cast somebody that is originally from Asia and not and probably not just a nation American, but somebody that is fully like like not born in the states. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, which the case of Ronnie 
it sort of like clicked all the boxes. So, so it was great for this actually. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it seems so easy to, 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 you know, to, to have somebody check out those boxes without companies trying to fulfill some sort of quota or, you know, be whatever, whatever. But why do you think we still have so much pushback on that? And, and, and what do you say to those who might say, oh, you're just trying to be woke or, or whatever? Uh, I think you expressed it really nicely. I mean, you said uh, you did it in a sort of organic, coherent way. I mean, I don't know how you put it, but, but this is my wording. Uh, without trying to force anything uh, into the story. And the, the story was, you know, like you, you you set up a story in the 1930s where where in the 1930s would you go to have this cosmopolitan world? That, that was Shanghai, basically, because they had the French quarters, the German quarters, the, the American quarters, like the, the whole city was divided in several areas, districts, and I think more than 50 languages were spoken. Uh, with a majority of Asian uh, races, of course, but but uh, but you don't have to dig that uh, that, that deep to to find a justification for your story. You don't need to go crazy being you know something that you are not because people, the audience, are not. The audience is pretty clever. They they're gonna know when you're playing with them and trying to force feed them something that is not. Um, uh legitimate i would say yeah well uh the film is inspector sun and the curse of the black widow uh and it opens next week is that correct on the 27th yeah i believe it's friday right before halloween yeah well i think it's i think it's a it, it's a perfect uh part of it's going to be a, a perfect part of a spooky week um <laughs> yes uh Julio Soto Capite, thanks so much for, for your time today. Thank you so much. Ready. Cheers. Interview. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks. Ciao. Bye. And once again, that was my conversation with Julio Soto Garpide. Uh, he is the director of the great new animated film, Inspector Sun, which is out now as of October 27th. From the world of animation and insect detectives, uh, we're staying with crime, but moving into uh, another world. Um, art, art forgeries, uh, organized crime, and the merging of those two. Uh, they all come together in a great new uh, dark comedy called The Kill Room. Starring Uma Thurman, Joe Manginello, uh, Sam Jackson, Maya Hawke, Jerry Hemingway, Debbie Mazar. Uh, and the woman that puts it all together is film director Nicole Payone. Uh, she is an alumna of the Groundlings Sunday Company uh, and has performed on The Big Gay Sketch Show, Punked, uh, as well as in many sketches for Funny or Die and had a role uh, in the 2009 film Funny People. Uh, she has turned to writing and directing in recent years. She wrote and directed the 2020 American comedy film 
Friendsgiving, starring Malin Ackerman, Kat Dennings, Aisha Tyler, Chelsea Peretti, Christine Taylor, Wanda Sykes, Margaret Cho, among others. Her latest film, which she directed, is called The Kill Room, and it's about when the art world meets the underworld, when a money laundering scheme accidentally turns a hitman into an overnight avant-garde sensation. It's witty, it's dark, it has Samuel L. Jackson as a baker, um, not to give not to give too many spoilers away, and uh, it is also the first time that Uma Thurman and her daughter, Maya Hawke, you may know from Stranger Things, it's the first time that the two of them appear together on screen uh, in the same film. So that is quite exciting. The film is The Kill Room, and this is my conversation with its director, Nicole Payone. Nicole Payone, how are you today? Thanks for being here. Great. How are you? Thanks for covering us. I'm 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 doing well. I'm a little bit jet lagged. I just flew in from London the other day, so I'm ah. I will. Uh, I'm I'm feeling <laughs> the same way. I came in from Barcelona uh, on Sunday, and it's yeah. I was. That's why I said to Tom, let's make these as early as possible. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Time time change got us all a little bit off kilter, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. But your your new film is is the Kill Room, um, and I know that this is sort of the first feature you've directed that that you haven't written. Because um, I, I know I know you wrote your last one, Frank Friendsgiving. I'm just curious from from a filmmaking perspective, what was that like for you, being in charge of somebody else's words, and how did you work with with Jonathan on that? Yeah, so I found it to be. Um there was more pressure that I put on myself because you, you know, you really want to um, service the script. And, and I, I feel like a good script has its own vibe and pulse. And I was really trying to listen to what that was saying to me. So when I read the script at first, I loved it. It was all the elements were there. And then I spent about two years with Jonathan, uh, rewriting and you know giving him countless notes and and really trying to round out all the characters and the story turns and have them collide in such a way that they did and so we really took time with it and I'm thankful we did because I mean I was not thinking Uma Thurman and Samuel Jackson when we started developing it. I was doing it over the pandemic. There were times when I was like, why am I working on this? It's, isn't it, I don't know if it'll ever happen, you know? And then we got it in the, I got it in the right hands and, and Uma Thurman said yes. And, and then we were off running. What, what are those conversations like when, when you get these, quote unquote, big names, these A-listers to be a part of your film? Is it like, hey, let's send it to Uma's agent or, or Joe's agent and just see what they say? No, it was it was a little bit more like our producers had the script, but 
they were off making other movies like the pandemic had kind of opened up and so they were doing their thing and and Jonathan was like nothing's really happening and um and and he basically you know asked me sort of to get more involved in that and and, and I said well let's let's um uh, let me let me I'll produce this as well and and I had been bothering a very good friend of mine her name is Danielle Thomas she's a partner at Untitled I've known her for 15 years and I knew she would like the film I knew if if she liked the film we could fill it with all of their clients and we can make a beautiful movie and so I bothered her for about a year and not knowing she was Uma Thurman's manager because you choose a friend. I wasn't checking up on her client list. And someone asked me who my ultimate Patrice was. And I said, Uma Thurman. And I was on a walk. Normally, I would get on IMDb and see who her manager was. But man, synchronicity just took place. And from the time I said Uma Thurman, I was sitting with her three weeks later because Danielle Thomas was Uma Thurman's manager. And she called me a week later. She was like, I read this. This is Uma Thurman. I'm going to give it to her. Is that okay? And I was like, Oh, are you kidding me? It, it blew my mind. The synchronicity blew my, absolutely blew my mind. I find it interesting. Not only did you get Uma, but you also have her daughter, Maya Hawk. And I believe this is the first time they have appeared on the screen together. Yes, um, it is how did that dynamic work for you as a director? You're directing, you know, two great performers, but they obviously have, you know, this pre-existing relationship. Yeah. They were wonderful together. They had fun together. You know, um, I think, I think when it's right, like the, 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 I love that they picked the kill room for this to be their first time working together. And, uh, it's certainly not going to be their last, but it, you know, it's not some precious mother daughter relationship. It's, it's pretty precocious. And, and I love Maya's performance in, in the two scenes and she's so strong and she's so well paced and it was just, it was fun to, to, to work with them both and to see them enjoying each other on set. You know, they, they had a good time and, and and they were able to play in such a way that. Oh, I lost your sound. Oh, is fun for the audience to watch. Um, You know, this film is sort of about the the criminal underworld of of art dealings, which we're, we've sort of come to a place in society, I think, where we're hearing more about that kind of world and, and what goes on. And it surprises some people and it, it doesn't others. Um, why do you think a subject matter like this has, you know, has sort of, uh, you know, come to be a part of the, the cultural zeitgeist? And, and why does it sort of fascinate us in the way that it does? Hmm. Well, I think largely because the art world typically is for high net worth and individuals and, you know, blue chip art. And so I think that it's been hidden because they kind of 
want it to be hidden. I don't think, I think they're more worried about the tax evasion than the murder. Like the, the movie is plausible, uh, 100% plausible. It was, Jonathan wrote it because of an article he read where someone got stabbed at Art Basel and they, she was wandering around after someone stabbed her and people thought it was an, a performance piece. And so it's certainly plausible. And with um, art collectors and, you know, if you look at uh, Vietnam, oh my God, Viennese, I'm forgetting the term. It's Viennese actionism. So sorry. Um, there, there's like bloody bags. It looks like liver and what that could be like, literally it's a serial killer's dream. And so um, I think the plausibility of the movie is, is high. And, and I think uh, the art world is sort of this inner niche circle that they don't really want their secrets to be told. Kind of, it's kind of what Patrice says about the bagman, you know, in terms of that, like, we have this big client, but we can't talk about him. You know, it, and it strikes me as artists, we sort of have this fine line between like, oh, we want to share everything with the world, but we don't, you know, but we're also very like, sh sort of shy and, and reserved as well. I mean, how how do you a approach that that balancing act? Well, number one, I don't read reviews. Because if you believe the good ones, you're going to believe the bad ones. I just don't think that, I think that the, the art critic or the, the the film critic, it's like, really, that's what you're doing with your life, being a critic? Like, you don't, no one knows what goes into making a movie and no one knows what decisions producers made to say, you know, hamper the schedule or, or like, just. Every movie is different. I, I do not criticize any movie. I think movie making is a miracle. It is a miracle that movies are good when they're good. And when they're not, who knows who's to blame, you know? And so, yeah, I, I just think the idea, like when I make something, I make it for me. And do I want people to like it? Absolutely. But so many people feel as though they have a right to like tear down, tear things down and that their opinions are, you know, a, a, should be a rule of law. And I'm like, man, people are just, people are just trying to live and people are just trying to create and, and no one knows what goes behind anyone's pathos. And so I think people need to just like back off with the criticism of things, especially online, anonymously, you're tearing stuff apart. Like, who, like, why are we judging art? Can't you just feel it? Can't you just experience it in a way that isn't through your lens? It's, it's amazing how, what you learn about people by their opinions of art. There's a, there's a great line in, in, in this film where Patrice is talking um, and she says, uh, uh, they're talking about, you know, do, do we get art? He was, she, she was asking the bag man about a, uh, a piece that he was looking at. And she goes, sometimes, I forget the exact line, but something like, sometimes art isn't for us to get or understand. Yeah. Right? And yeah. 
I feel sometimes, you know, we, we go to a gallery or we see a film and, and we see a theater and maybe we try to draw too much meaning out of it. Are, can we enjoy whatever it is we're watching, whether it's a show or whether it's just like, you know, a walk through nature? Can we enjoy it just for what it is without having to always attach something more meaningful to it? Can we? I mean, I hope I that's the hope, right? Like you even when I speak about certain pieces, it's like not everything is going to resonate with you. It's really why the artist made it. And sometimes the artist doesn't realize why they're making it until after they go like, if it was stream of consciousness, you don't know why you're, why this is coming out. It's just, it, it's just, it is what it is. And, and the receptivity of that in the moment for an artist is critical to, to receive that nudge, that small, tiny voice and then to go out and either write something, paint something, uh, make a joke, or for whatever reason, like, that's hard to tap into. And so many people do it so brilliantly. And so I think, like, people need to back off a little bit. Like, just, man, we're all just trying to live a beautiful life, right? We all know what yeah. a beautiful life looks like. Maybe it's a little different to each person, but especially as artists, like I think a lot of pathos and it's, and it's, it's cathartic to make art. And, and I, 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 yeah, I think, I hope, I hope so. If, I mean, whether you're a creator or an audience, you know, or, or a viewer is a negative reaction better than no reaction or ambivalence um sure i yeah i i think so because it teaches you a lot you know maybe maybe as an artist you needed to hear that negative reaction maybe that makes you go deeper into something and go like why did i do that that way or i think self-judgment if something makes you judge yourself then that that's that's not great but yeah, no reaction. Then it kind of means you're like a little bit beige. And I had a, gr I have a great artist friend. His name is Drew Drogi. He's starring in an off-Broadway show right now. He said, call me, call me anything. Call me uh, ugly. Call me this, call me that, but don't call me beige. <laughs> I like that. I like that. You know, it's interesting because this film is largely about criminals or at least people who have maybe less than moral dealings with about certain things. Um, and the old trope in film is, you know, or in creating something is sympathetic characters, sympathetic characters. How do you, as, as a sort of the, the, the master of the ship, if you will, get, get people to sympathize with, characters that if they met in real life they probably wouldn't like hmm. well that certainly wasn't the goal i think it's just important not to judge your characters i think it's it's why people do what they do 
I think that's just an endless exploration. Um, certainly we know why Reggie's doing what he's doing and, and Gordon as well. Um, it's really, they, they really, they couldn't get out. Right. I think, I think in this way, art and creativity helps Reggie get out and, I will say that in this world today, I think we need a lot more creativity and a lot more creative people in leadership positions because I just think that things can be solved if we put our heads together in a creative way. Um, but yeah, I hope, did that answer your question? Yeah. Well, and you know, I think along that note, uh, a lot of people talk about the power of of humor and the power of laughter and helping us get through things and this film has a lot of that and it's particularly sort of you know humor about maybe the, the 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 darker side of things and and i'm curious why you think we as a society you know maybe find so so much humor in in things that maybe are uncomfortable or or, or things that are a little bit more sinister and, and, and shady if you will mm -hmm. i don't know if i approach it in that way i think i just grew up in a family in a loud large italian family where if there was something say of a darker nature happening like or like an argument or something there would somebody would always cut it with a joke and so I think that was learned from a, a, a young, uh, you know, uh, those were early lessons that I took that there's always room for humor, even at a funeral. Yeah. And so, yeah, that I think, and I think that will always be a part of my work. Sam Jackson seems like a man who is just oozing with humor all the time, but also very serious about his crap. He has that great du du duality. How do you direct somebody like that? Oh, simple. Um, no. <laughs> um, honestly, it was such a brilliant pleasure to work with Sam and his team. Like, we we just went through every aspect of the character and we built it together uh, in terms of the wardrobe. You know, we, we sent him some lookbooks and we had zo countless zoom meetings on wardrobe, hair, character. And it's just all a discussion and all like a painting, if you will. And you just kind of throw a lot of it at, at the canvas and, and, it's really about communication and asking for what you need. And, you know, we, we, we sent Sam some lookbooks and we were on a zoom meeting and, and, you know, we're, we're talking and showing him stuff and talking about the character. And then maybe 15 minutes in, he goes, okay, I got, the, I got him. I got him. You know, you're, you're just like help helping create the character and you're throwing stuff up and maybe in his mind he's going no I don't feel that I feel that yes no yes no and then he goes I got it and then he was shooting another movie so we sent him the wardrobe and he they put together the combinations that they liked and they sent us back the pictures and and I said yes on that no on that and then so by the time he gets to set 
like his team, they were incredibly communicative about like what his needs are and, and his boundaries. And, and that, that to me is like a, a blessing instead of taking time to figure it out and how it's just like, no, there's clear cut communication. And, and I ask for what I need on set and in certain, at certain times. And, and that, and that was it. And it was just, he was just a, a goddamn pleasure. I mean, to, to be, be in a small room with Sam Jackson and be the one to ask for him to say uh, MF or another time. It's like, how did I get that honor? <laughs> um, this, this, I mean, it, it did seem like it just, a, it just seems like a very fun um, group of people, but was there a, uh, for you, was there a, a favorite moment that you had while shooting that you're that you're just like you you either really liked how it turned out, maybe it was a poignant moment or the script, or it was a bit maybe it bordered on on the surreal. Yeah, I I loved um, I loved the morning after scene. I love the 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 lighting. Uh, I love the composition. I love the way Joe looked standing up next to the stacked bags that, that they were just like lit by the sun. And I, I love that scene, you know, um, it was that moment that I kind of re fell in love with the project all, all over again. And, and there were challenges. I had to rewrite the ending because Joe got COVID. And so the ending, I think, I think the ver the ending of, you know, when they sit on the bench and we're intercutting, that to me is is a magical scene because the the script wasn't written that way, but we had to improvise because of the lack of an ending that we shot, and so I think it all it all came together nicely. Uh, well, the film is the Kill Room, and it comes out uh, November third on digital and VOD. Nicole Payon, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Dan. All right. No worries. You have a good day. You too. Cheers. Bye. And once again, that was my conversation with film director Nicole Payone. Her new film, The Kill Room, is out on digital and VOD on November the 3rd. I am slowly, now that I'm sort of able to breathe and, and rest for a minute, um, getting all my intros uh, and music uh, for this podcast kind of back up uh, to where they need to be. So hopefully by uh, next week's episode, I will have that all organized, but uh, you will hear um, an old outro that I managed to scrounge up, uh, just, you know, just a, a, a little bit of music, so it's not uh, just me talking, you know, so that there's 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 some semblance of uh, format uh, going on here, um, but yes, uh, that does it for me today. My thanks to Nicole Payone, and uh, my thanks to Julio Soto Garpide. Uh, once again, his film is Inspector Sun, and that is out now. Uh, I will have another show up next week. Hopefully, I'm going to get back to doing uh, longer form interviews, but like I said, uh, I need to get my uh, Zoom back up to uh, the uh, paid version. 
Anyway, that's a story for another day. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Just say I like a